0: Japan Airlines Flight 516 was cleared to land and approached Runway 34 right. The smaller Japan Coast Guard aircraft had permission to taxi, but not to take off. The Coast Guard acknowledging that call from the tower in its last transmission before the crash. Five, four, three, we
2: have ignition.
0: Seven,
2: And liftoff of the first United Launch Alliance Vulcan rocket.
1: A stunning early morning launch, the first for the ULA Vulcan rocket. But while that stage of the mission was celebrated, the craft taking a lunar lander with NASA scientific instrumentation on board, facing a serious issue. About seven hours after Vulcan lifted off from the Cape Canaveral Space Force Station, and after successful stage separation, trouble struck. Astrobotic announcing a problem with the propulsion system on its lunar lander, calling it a critical fuel leak.
3: We have spacecraft from another species.
0: We do. Yeah. How many? Quite a number. You're kidding. No. I thought it was totally nuts and I thought at first I was being deceived, it was a ruse. People started confiding in me, they approached me. I have. Plenty of current former senior intelligence officers that came to me, many of which I knew almost my whole career, that confided to me they were a part of a program. They named the program. I've never heard of it. David, we've just heard that two key provisions were killed from this defense bill that basically watered down the requirement to make public any information about spacecraft, about alien remains. I take it you're
1: disappointed.
0: Yes. Yeah. Thank you for having me on today. And you know what we're witnessing right now is quite frankly uh, the greatest legislative failure in, in American history.
1: Those are a few of the subjects you will hear about this hour. If you have questions about the Boeing 737 being grounded, if you have questions about the uh, Japan airline collision, if you have questions about Congress being briefed on UFOs or why we may not be going to the moon, after all, you are tuned to the right radio program. This is The Other Side of Midnight, and you are about to hear... Some Cosmic Conversations.
0: The Other Side of Midnight presents... From the spiral, to the elliptical, to the lenticular, to the irregular, to the quasars galaxies. Where are we in the cosmic evolutionary picture? Always remember to keep your eyes to the skies. The following conversations are Cosmic Conversations with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky.
1: Our shepherd on this journey through the stars and the skies is indeed Doctor Sky Steve Cates. He is a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer with a great deal of expertise in astronomy and space. Also, a terrific podcaster for uh, the Red Apple Podcast Network. You can check out his podcast, "The Doctor Sky Experience," and the recipient for our year-end award of our most interesting regular contributor steve it's great to have you back happy 2024 yes happy 2024 frank and let me thank the listeners for that high honor and
3: again yourself looking forward to do a great job here in 2024 as the early indications are so many topics to talk about and excited once again to be here
1: live well let's begin with the uh Boeing set Boeing 737 max situation i i imagine most people have heard at least a little bit about this. But essentially, a, a panel came loose on the airplane in the middle of the flight. I can't imagine how frightening that that is for the passengers. An Alaska Airlines flight, and uh, it, they're having to make an emergency landing, essentially with a gaping hole in the airplane. Boeing 737 MAX 9s have been grounded. United... Alaska Airlines, they're now saying they've found a whole bunch of loose bolts. Not exactly yes. the kind of thing that gives people confidence. Give us your take on what we know about this situation at this point and where we go from here.
3: Well, I can just say thank God that nobody was injured uh, on board this Alaska flight 1282. So as we know, back like on January 5th, the aircraft takes off out of Portland, Oregon, and it's flying over to Ontario, California. But as soon as they get up to a flight altitude, not even the maximum altitude of about 16,000 feet, the story centers around these plugs that happen to be placed on this type of aircraft. And by the way, not every configuration of these MAX, you know, aircraft, the MAX 8, the MAX 9, and also a future one that's probably, and I believe very accurately, in the production now and also testing the MAX 10. The reason for this type of door and why it was plugged, on this particular configuration of aircraft, Alaska shows this and other airlines, because it's a narrow-bodied aircraft with less of a, you know, passenger load. So the requirements would not necessitate the type of, you know, emergency exit doors that are on the longer, you know, heavier flight uh, numbers that they would place on an airplane, meaning meeting passengers. So what they have, you wouldn't know this, as you're sitting there in those rows. There's no indication like you would have on a regular airliner where you know, let's say, an overwing entry or exit, I should say, off the airplane if you had to get out of an emergency. So what from the outside of the aircraft, there's this item which fits right across that area. It's an actual module that's cut out by the subcontractor. And you have to know this, that Spirit Aerosystems is actually one of the prime contractors for portions of that fuselage on these aircraft. So the whole survey is going back, and the analysis and investigation is going to go back to their factory, you know, their facility in Kansas as to what happened. So simply, they have this plug, and it has these bolts or plugs that are up on top to kind of seal that so that it's not going to come out. And apparently, this is even the most bizarre thing I've read, and this is just information that's coming to us from the Internet, is that one of those plugs – the bolt itself and the plug was actually found by someone in their backyard on Sunday, and that's a key piece for the investigation because they need to understand why these weren't tightened down or whether there's metal fatigue. You know, the metallurgists are going to go, you know, deep into this. But just know that this configuration, you wouldn't have known that there was some sort of a door there. So as you're sitting in your passenger seat, you would have looked, and it would be, you know, the paneling that you normally see if there's no exit door there. So it gets to 16,000 feet, these things decompress. And that was the most horrifying thing I can imagine. This is not the first time airliners have had decompression. I mean, there's actually been stories, Frank, of people, let's say, a long time ago, a DC-10 at flight altitude, max flight altitude, about 35,000 feet, had a window that actually popped out. And that caused a serious decompression. And I know there were some instances where 747s, one, I believe, coming out of Hawaii, which had a total failure of its uh, cargo bay door underneath, and it blew the whole side of the airplane out. And some people, sadly, got sucked out and maybe some ingested into the engines at uh, maybe 20,000, 30,000 feet or more. But the investigation goes on. and, And not to say that these are bad aircraft. That would be wrong for me to say. But the problematic thing is, I believe, on that particular day after, it wiped out maybe $12 billion of market value over to Boeing. But, if we go back really quickly, there's been other issues with the max eight, and that's why those aircraft were grounded. but it was an entirely different thing. It had to do with the technical system that the airplane flies by called the nCAf system, and we had two very serious you know one hundred percent fatalities on some of those aircraft. That's horrible. that was a whole different computer type you know s- system to keep it simple. but this one uh, that's that's really thank God not, nothing further happened that those people got down. And it didn't happen at a higher altitude, maybe up at 30,000 feet or however they, you know, cruise altitude of that airplane.
1: Well, so it's interesting that you mentioned the uh, the stock price and the decline of stock price yes. in Boeing. Boeing has basically, especially since this Russia-Ukraine war, but even more so with this latest uh, situation in the Middle East, they have been... Uh, Just printing money. They are an incredibly lucrative firm and they have made sort of an art out of getting high level government people, uh, Nikki Haley, for instance, but also a lot of prominent generals, Mm -hmm. a lot of prominent political people in both both parties, putting them on their board, paying them a lot of money, spending a lot of money in lobbying to get the kind of policies they want, and then hopefully a lot of those people from Boeing's perspective go back into government and make the kind of policy that benefits Boeing. That's one aspect of it. The other thing that some people are calling Mm -hmm. attention to is the length that these airlines will go to squeeze and pack as many passengers as possible into these airplanes, so that they can charge another four, five, six, seven hundred, eight hundred dollars per seat. I mean, uh, what role do you think corporate greed might have played here in terms of cutting corners?
3: Well, I don't know, Frank, and I think what we have to do is be fair on this. And you are, of course, and I think everybody out there with an open mind. This is not necessarily—it's the responsibility of the prime manufacturer, Boeing, to get these aircraft out and safe. But we have to look at the subcontractors that are building this. There's a long investigation that's going. But obviously, we see now, let's take a look at the iteration of the MAX 10. It's a longer aircraft. Its seat capacity, I believe, and if I'm correct, is upwards of 220 people compared to the 177 that was on this particular version of this MAX aircraft. But let me give Boeing some credit here and other airlines. Here's something interesting. For the longest time, you were not allowed to, by FAA rules, flying twin-engine jets unless they were like corporate jets. These, I'm talking commercial airliners. So in the past, maybe what? Maybe not, I don't know the exact time period, maybe in the last decade or so or more, we've seen two-engine aircraft like 737s that are now certified to fly over the ocean, let's say from San Francisco, San Diego, all the way to Hawaii. That would be pretty much, you know, against the rules then. But here, here's why you got to give them credit. These airliners, particularly the Boeing, They've added this thing called ETOPS on there. And I've talked to many pilots about this. What it is, it's an extended range aircraft, maybe more fuel, obviously. But in a lighter moment, I asked one of the pilots, and this is kind of a little humorous, I think, I said, What does ETOPS stand for? And his response to me, looking at me square in the eye, he said, We call it engines turn or people swim. So I thought that was an interesting analogy to talk about. But you have to give them credit. We've been able to take these aircraft to fly farther but your concern as many people are right the seating room in those airplanes you know maybe there's somebody getting upset in aisle seven or by a window seat you know you can't keep people you know hibernated in aircraft and trapped in aircraft of course the higher density of the seating the longer the flights but the airlines are trying to do what they can to quote fill seats build airplanes that can take more people but these aircraft that boeing and i don't work for boeing but i'm saying If you look at it from the other perspective, they're actually being able to generate with better engines more economy to getting passengers to their destination. But the other story needs to be investigated.
1: All right. Um, Why did this happen? If people have questions about this or anything else involving the sky, now's the time to ask. Uh, 1-800-848-9222. A couple of folks are already queuing up. There's two open lines if you want to jump on board with the question. 800-848-9222. Let me ask you about the other airline disaster that got a lot of attention. I believe it was on New Year's Day in Japan, Uh, this situation involving these these two planes colliding and the loss of life was minimal. I mean, again, any loss of life is just tragic, but it could have been much worse given the number of passengers involved here. What do we know about what went down on this Japan airplane? Well, we find
3: out that the major airliner in this case, thank God, all the passengers got out. But if you look at the video there, you would imagine that nobody got out. A collision apparently with a Japanese team that was also flying out to investigate and do some more, you know, surveillance and actually help some of the victims of the uh, horrible earthquake that they had at that same time. So we don't know for sure what it is. But on the ground, obviously, you wonder so many times, how can aircraft collide on runways when air traffic control is giving what? clear and concise instructions to pilots. But here's another issue that pops up here, and I don't know if this is primarily why this happened, but here's something very interesting. We have other nations around the world that do not necessarily communicate in clear English to air traffic controllers. Because I guess the universal language is, and if I'm correct in this, I'm not a pilot, so I can't say I can take credit for this with absolute certainty. But we have a lot of instances where I've talked to a lot of people who fly in and out on major airlines without naming the airline, and they say that they get on airline cross traffic, and we have a lot of nations that don't speak clearly to whatever the air traffic controllers are speaking. So what? Do we have to hire pilots that speak 62 different languages? No, we have a standard. So that could be, and I'm just speculating here. I have no more information on that. Well, what's the miracle of the whole thing is that those people on that aircraft, the larger commercial plane, they got out. But I believe all those on the other aircraft, the smaller aircraft, perished in that horrific fire. Because remember, if you're looking at a 737, let's say this smaller aircraft, not a seven, you know, triple seven or a 787 Dreamliner or a 747, you're looking at probably on a 737 about 6,300 gallons of fuel. And on these larger aircraft, like 747s, you're probably looking at, what, 43,000 gallons of fuel. But they measure it in weight always, not, not just in gallons. But can you imagine when we saw the video of this horrible fire? I give a lot of credit to the people who are on that flight that are in charge of that flight, the flight crew, to get the people off that airplane. Because look at that fire. It's just so horrible. And what are planes made of? material that will burn. Look at the inside of the camera. It's not all fireproof Nomex material. It's
1: kind of flammable material with uh, tons and tons of jet fuel. Absolutely, absolutely. That's very sad. All right, a lot of people eager to chat with you. 800-848-9222, that's 800-848-9222. Let me begin with our buddy Neil uh, in Staten Island. Hello there, Neil. Hey, Frank. How you doing, doctor?
3: Good morning. How are you, Neil? Happy New Year.
2: Right.
1: I, I got two questions for you, Doc. The first one is,
2: on the space travel, the rocket uh, that Elon Musk uh, just launched didn't make it. I was wondering, you know, when you have a rocket, you would think that they would go over and over and over it to make sure that everything is just right. Uh, I right. know Frank wants to go into space, but how can we really assure Frank's safety when he takes off? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good oh, that's
1: question. A very, How safe is question. space travel? Because now it's becoming more and more common, especially if you yeah. have the means and you can afford to buy a ticket into space. How safe is it, Steve? Well, I think it's fairly safe. I mean, here it is. Look, look at the
3: statistics. Here. I think it's safer than flying in commercial aircraft because let's just talk about what Neil's bringing up here. You know, Elon Musk has launched the second time his big Starship rocket. But remember, The people in the backside or the back end of the story with SpaceX, they knew that there was going to be potential for, you know, these rockets to explode. They detonated these rockets to destroy them. They are trying to get perfection on this, but there's no such thing as perfection. So the answer to the part of my question about how safe it is, you know, ask Jeff Bezos. We've had everybody fly up in the suborbital flights, right, Neil? And thank God nothing has happened where anybody has, you know, perished in space so far or suborbital flights. And if you look at Richard Branson's, you know, attempt to space, they had a few of their pilots, you know, die in the early evolution before they do the opening of commercial spaceflight. So bottom bottom line, Neil, I think it's fairly safe. It's just that the prohibition right now is that the cost per pound to get into space is prohibitive, just like myself and maybe you, Neil, and, and Frank has to answer for himself. I'm not ready to write the check to go up, but would I? I probably would. I'll join you, Frank, if we maybe configure a way to get the funding. Yeah,
1: that'd be great. Maybe we'll get we'll get a special one yeah. of those media media <laughs> passes. But you know, I, I do wonder. Just listening right. to your conversation with Neil, you know, it, it reminds me in some ways of, and mm-hmm. I know we talked about it at the time, the the super wealthy people that would buy a ticket on the titan or other similar submersibles to right. go down and see the titanic on the ocean floor it's safe until it isn't and i just wonder exactly. are, are the folks that are that are charging a lot of money to take people for a ride up into space are they doing a better job making sure all their t's are crossed and i's are dotted than the folks that were responsible for safety precautions on the titan well here's here's the
3: answer the titan if you look at this deeply i know john and i talked about this on you know, the, the five o'clock program and, you know, Cass and Cosby back earlier in the year. The problematic thing with the Titan was it was not to be certified if it was, you know, descended in, excuse me, if it dissent, that is, in American waters. It did it in international waters where there's no, you know, rules, regulations, so to speak, like there are here. So here's the deal in the United States, Bezos has to go through all this, you know, criticality with the FAA. And all these other agencies, just like you know Elon with his big rocket in southern Texas, that's why there's lawsuits against his original launch of Starship because it blew the launch pad up and allegedly sent chunks of concrete the mm-hmm. size of you know maybe a basketball or maybe bigger over an area. So government control here, I think, has actually helped. You know, if you're a, if you're a free person or somebody who's a libertarian, you may not want that. You know, keep the government out of my out of my hair, but. I think that's the simple answer there, that the government control here has, I think, led to a little more safety than what the Titan did in international
1: waters uh, f- when it was not. Fair enough. Alright, a lot of people very eager to chat with you. We're going to continue with, uh, with calls in just a moment. Also, can't ignore the other big story this week. We were all excited. We covered it live on the air. The launch, uh, Back to the Moon, and we talked about the commercial endeavor with that, with respect to the uh, people's remains, including former presidents and Star Trek cast yes. members that were going to have their uh, remains sent to the moon, but also some really great scientific stuff, now doesn't look like it's going according to plan. We're going to get Dr. Sky's take in just a moment. Your calls at 800-848-9222. We'll continue our con- cosmic conversations straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano.
1: Benatar wants to be hit with your best shot. Um, It's her birthday today. Happy birthday, Pat Benatar. Uh, This is certainly one of the most iconic songs of the 1980s. We're giving you our best shot at informing and maybe even stimulating the imagination as we embark upon some cosmic conversations.
0: The Other Side of Midnight presents... From the spiral, to the elliptical, to the lenticular, to the irregular, to the quasar's galaxies. Where are we in the cosmic evolutionary picture? Always remember... To keep your eyes to the skies, the following conversations are Cosmic Conversations with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky.
1: If you are interested in any of the subjects that we have discussed this thus far or will get into this hour, you really need to make a point to listen to the Dr. Sky experience. It makes what we're doing now look like tiddlywinks. Really in-depth conversations, some great commentary, some great interviews, and about a, a lot of stuff not just related to space, but uh, other interesting subjects in general, because Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, is an interesting, interesting guy. You know, Steve, I was thinking about you today, and other people have um, asked me this question before. How have you not, or perhaps you have, I don't know that you have, uh, how have you not written a book? You've led such an interesting life, and you have such an interesting way of telling stories and making um, complex Technological or scientific, um, you know, phenomenon understandable to laymen like me. How is it that you've never written a book?
3: You know, Frank. It's, like it's so ironic that you mentioned that. As the new year comes around, my significant other, the love of my life, Diana, she sat down with me just around New Year's Eve, not exactly, and she said, "You know, Steve, it's time for you to write that book." But you know what I'm going to think? I'm going to do. I'm going to call John Casimatis and ask him because he has a very successful book and maybe get some advice from him and some others. But you're absolutely right. That would be a great thing, because you know what we would add in there? We probably have thousands of interviews that we could go back to from all these individuals. But, uh, wow, you know, maybe I'm going to hold – I'm going to put that down in my – 2024 list of things to do i think that's a great idea we'll keep you informed on
1: that all right steve um we were really excited on monday on this show watching this uh lunar launch it seemed like an exciting thing scientifically seemed like an exciting thing economically quite frankly and it seemed like an exciting thing for people that had an interest in seeing their remains go to the moon or orbit the sun um they launched with a lot of optimism i watched it live at 218 eastern in the morning as it happened what happened looks like there's some problems
3: well here we go let's take all the puzzle pieces and put them together for the listeners we've got to give credit to united launch alliances who are they they're a company that's been around kind of in the shadow they make great products and this particular rocket on its maiden voyage vulcan centaur was a whole new heavy lift rocket it replaces some of the things that the Atlas V rocket has been doing successfully for years. So that rocket launches, and what's on there? A payload by a company called Astrobiotic, Bi- Astrobi, excuse me. And on there, on that particular spacecraft, the Peregrine, this little particular lander, it would have been the first commercial lander to land successfully on the moon, as we looked at February 23rd launch date. Now it was interesting because it was going to a new region of the moon. That's named. In other words, we just can't just name areas. We'd love to have a crater named after each each of us and every listener out there. But the International Astronomical Union is the one that makes that happen. So this spacecraft was going to make, at least that's its intent, a soft landing attempt at a new area of the moon called Sinus Viscociatus. What the heck is that? In English, it's called the Bay of Stickiness. Don't ask me why they called it the Bay of Stickiness, but that's what the Latin translates Well, all those things are off now because here's what we think happened. That particular spacecraft, as it had its second stage, it goes around the Earth and then it goes to what they call a translunar injection. Sounds like a medical procedure. That's when the rocket has to fire with full power to get that rocket as the Apollos did and other rockets to go to the moon to get it into that lunar orbit. So maybe we don't know this for sure. Maybe upon the release of the payload, the Peregrine lander and that whole module, maybe something happened where it couldn't successfully get out of that second stage. Maybe something broke, lines broke. So we know in the simplest way right now from the video that there's a propellant leak going on there. So that's going to jeopardize. I think it's final. I mean, that's what I just read about an hour ago before we're on air, that they're not going to be able to do this landing. But the purpose of this whole thing from Astrobotic, they're a great company because what they're going to be doing is they're going to be able to send payloads to the moon that might be in the more affordable range. Like if you have an experiment or something, or companies do, let's get there to do the soft landing first. But on board there, you're so right. A company like Celestis, they had a project called Lunar Tranquility where they were going to descend, you know, onto the surface of the moon, human remains, as Celestis has been doing for a long time, with you know little tiny parts, little specks of cremated you know remains of humans. But also another side com- conversation's been going on with the Navajo Nation, because there's some obviously people from the Navajo Nation you know your tribal community that their remains are on board and they're having this big argument back and forth that you know you shouldn't land those things on the surface of the moon because that's a sacred you know in in their culture and rightfully so. But the argument from the company that was sending things to the moon. They were saying that they're not going to actually be lying on the moon. They're going to be above the moon inside the spacecraft. But here comes the big thing that not many people know. The spacecraft is still heading out into space. Mm. And it also has, as you've mentioned, I don't know how they got this. How did they get the DNA of George Washington and all these other presidents? That's going out into space anyway. There's nothing to do with the lunar landing. So there is some hope on this for, you know, memorializing in eternity, deep space, the remains of presidents and others that are headed out. Two separate, you know, concepts here. But it's kind of sad because it's difficult business. This is interesting. It's very, very difficult to land an object on the moon. Look what happened to Russia's Luna 25. They had had it all figured out, and it crashed into the surface of the moon. And one of their directors of the uh, space program that was responsible for that in Russia, he immediately had some chest pains, and I guess I would, because I wouldn't want to have to face the phone call from Vladimir Putin the next day when my multi-million dollar craft, somehow, the computer didn't shut the you know, retro rocket off, and it went full force into the moon. So bottom line, landing on the surface of the moon is very difficult. Look at the Indian nation that just did this. That was very difficult. They've had more failures than successes. So I guess Astrobotic is going to try again Nothing comes easy when it comes to space.
1: That's for sure. All 848 Max is in Manhattan. Hi, Max.
3: Hello,
2: uh, Frank and
3: Dr.
1: Sky. Thank you for taking my call. Good um, morning, Max. We, uh, good, uh, good. Happy New Year. Um, yes, you, I understand sir. that, that Nassau, by by law, has to report anything they find when they land on the moon because it's a government agency. But... From what I understand, there have been military missions, like a military mission called Clementine, that has gone Mm -hmm. to the moon, and they do not have to report what they find. Um, There's a book called Dark Mission, put out by
2: Richard Hoagland, and in the book he mentions uh, a lot of things that were, quote-unquote, found up
1: there that shouldn't have been up there, uh, even like glass towers. So what do you know about this?
3: Well, let me say this. I've known uh, Richard Hoagland for many years. I respect his research, but my way of looking at kind of the opposite side of this max is i go with the basis of the information from a space probe a lunar probe called lunar reconnaissance orbiter and not to be biased it it's headquartered out here in arizona too where they have a command you know kind of control center but my my point on this is i have looked and talked to so many of those scientists and i have never ever seen other than like the so-called face on mars or things that look like a face when we go back to the moon I have never seen any evidence for glass castles or anything like that on the surface of the moon. I would kind of think since we've covered most of the moon with the LRO, I'd be uh, interested to see what those pictures that somebody might show me differently, but, well, what say you Max on that?
1: that that's quite interesting. Uh, Max. Oh, sorry. That was my error. Max, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, he, yeah. There've been other things that have popped up um, other than what Hoagland has pointed out, like the uh, obelisks that are on the moon. Mm-hmm.
3: Oh yes. Well, let me say this again, not to refute anything that you know you're saying or Richard's saying. I think what we've seen on the surface of the moon, the most strange, the strangest phenomenon that I've ever you know seen or talked to or interviewed people about, is these events that happen on the moon where we see glowing areas of material on the surface of the moon, and they're called lunar transient phenomenon, and this is real. They had one crater in the 1950s where a telescopic observer in Russia. One of the mountain peaks start glowing because the moon is not totally dead. But as far as any obelisks or anything like that, I'll go with the LROs information. You know, I I think it yet needs yet to be proven. Excuse me, I haven't seen any evidence for any glass towers or anything like that on the surface of the moon, or anything that looks like any civilization had landed there. At least not in this particular time.
1: Speaking of the moon, uh, and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Doctor Sky. Steve Cates, you can check out his podcast, The Dr. Sky Experience. Just search that in any podcast app, or you can uh, go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com. Obviously, there was a lot of excitement about the Americans returning to the moon with with the Artemis project. Now it looks like it was announced yesterday that um, that's going to be delayed until the very earliest 2026. Are you getting pessimistic about the attempts by NASA to go back to the moon?
3: I'm not, but I support what they're doing. But here we go, Frank. If you look at the budget of NASA, it's tremendously, it's very, very small, small, excuse me, minuscule. I mean, $18, $20 billion for NASA when you look at so many of the other expenditures that the government has. But I think the real reason behind this, Office of Management and Budget is doing reviews on how over-budgeted much of this is with this particular rocket. You know, we have the best astronauts, men and women, that are looking to go. But before we go to the moon, we have to do the Artemis II mission. And that hopefully can happen sometime this year. And what is that? That's like a replicant of Artemis I. And if people didn't know what Artemis I was, it was to go out beyond the moon to test the Orion space capsule, which is a beautiful, you know, much larger, much more modern, you know, iteration of what the old Apollo capsule was like. But... Artemis 3, they're saying, will be the landing on the surface of the moon. But honestly, I don't even think it's going to happen in 2026. I think it's really? going to be pushed back even more. Yes, yeah. because and I'm optimistic. Let's do it the right way. Let's do it the safe way. And there's another issue that really needs to be addressed here, and that is the gateway space station that they really need to kind of work together on because why would you want to send astronauts to the surface of the moon just to say we did it when the real reality is that Gateway Space Station, and they're they're, doing, they're testing a space probe to look at the orbit where that would go into. Bottom line, the, the Gateway is kind of like your lifeboat in the event that something happens on the surface of the moon where you really don't want to risk going back to Earth if something happens just like a, sad to say, a replication of an Apollo 13 type of mission. So I think, yes, you know, budgetary things, constraints, that's something – and then we got to tip our hat, you know. I don't work for SpaceX, but we got to tip our hat to them. How many successful launches have they had? And the government is really endeared to SpaceX to get many of our even our secret military spacecraft, you know, out there into orbit. I think it's going to take a lot longer because of budgetary issues time constraints on getting these rockets to work properly,
1: I wouldn't rush it. I mean, would you agree? I would do it the right way. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously you want it to work. Uh, That's paramount. But, you know, it's just, I I know we've talked about this a bunch before. It's just so, Mm -hmm. uh, it's just so frustrating to think that we were going to the moon regularly between 1969 and 1973 and you would assume that space exploration technology would have advanced to the point of the Jetsons or Star Trek in the last 50 years when it seems like we're struggling just to do what we did 50 years ago Uh, so here's the answer
3: well here's the answer in my opinion very quickly we had a space shuttle program which is great we had accidents. We had great successes, more successes. But remember, President Nixon was the one that canceled most of those future Apollo missions. And it was stated a long time ago, even by Dr. Gunther von Braun, that we could have made the trip to Mars a lot sooner. There was even there was even hopes, Frank, of having a manned mission to Mars in the 1980s. But the space shuttle took up. And for good reasons, you know, I mean, obviously, it, it was a low Earth orbiting platform to deploy spacecraft like Hubble, and do research. But that's where most of the money went, and they didn't really look at a focus on going back to the moon until probably as we move into the uh, early 2000s.
1: 800-848-9222. Al is in New York City. Hello, Al. You're on with Dr. Sky. Good
2: Good evening, Dr. Sky. Good evening, Superstar Frank. Uh, you, you had Doctor Sky had just talked about my artist, Artemis question, so if I could uh, maybe shift and sure, pivot. Sure, whatever you want. Yeah. Uh, concerning, sure, go ahead, sir. concerning about concerning about the that plane, like uh, the one that uh, in Japan that was on fire. I understood it was like 360 people had uh, uh, was they were able to get out of there. They're supposed to do it in 90 seconds. I believe they did it in 18 minutes. Uh, yeah. They had some plane like the Airbus 380 that have actually passed 90-second exit, uh, uh, getting out of a plane, 873 people. So my concern is also that a lot of these new planes are made out of carbon. And carbon, uh, we don't know enough long-term. What's your feeling about that? You know, like uh, when aluminum planes, the bodies, which are basically a big can, they decompressurize back and forth continuously. But carbon, uh, I'm worried more... uh, of it uh, delaminating or just breaking because it's so stiff, you know, what, what's your concern about that? And also uh, if there was mm-hmm. a solar uh, flare, a large solar flare, would yes. we or people in space um, have their radiation as far as cancer risk increased tremendously, you know, during uh, an event like that?
3: No, Great question, Sal, and happy new year. Here we go with the first part. Happy I mean, these
2: aircraft, built, as
3: you said, Mostly out of aluminum skin, and a lot now moving into carbon fiber. I don't know, I'm not a metallurgist to know, or actually in the carbon fiber world. You know, they're doing this to make the efficiency part, you know, lighter airplanes that can carry more load, more powerful jet engines. But the thing is, let's talk about that A380 for a minute. People are not familiar with it. You seem to be out. This is one of the most massive airplanes in the world, you know, fully a two deck level aircraft, not like a 747 that just has a short. Secondary upper deck, even stretched. But the problem with that is, my God, you know, to get people off one of those airplanes, 500, 600 people, or whatever, are on there. You know, they've done a great job in trying to make sure everything's safe on there. But the, but the second part, of what you're talking about here, you know, as we move deeper into space and we talk about this, you know, the future of space looks very bright. But give me again the the very second part of what you were saying there. I didn't I
2: didn't quite hear you. So please please give me that again. If the second part. On the plasma, uh, lately, the sun has really been oh, wet, yeah, sure. and by what? Yes. We've been missing sometimes by a week or two. Similar to like when they say uh, we see all asteroids coming, and then guess what? Oh, guess what? Seven days ago, an asteroid came tremendously close. I mean, really, it's not that close. But so a lot of things are are, are not seen. So when. At any given moment, if a solar flare really, really want to come out, they say it's possible that 90% of Earth within a year would uh, not be able to exist because there would be no more crops or nothing available. And uh, I don't know how true that is, but I do know that the solar flare activity is lately tremendous.
3: Yes, sir. I, now I hear you clearly, and here, here's the response. The most massive one that we know from history, or at least one of them, you know, recorded history, 1859 Carrington, right? But if we had one similar to that, we had one on New Year's Eve that was an X5, the most powerful one of this solar cycle. But it would probably take a much more massive solar flare. We're lucky that obviously a much, much more massive flare, maybe even bigger than that of Carrington, to really start to do damage to, the, you know, to human bodies, the DNA or stuff like that. And here's why we're kind of blessed. We're blessed that the Earth has this protective magnetic field around us that basically, if you want to look at it real simply, when those solar flares and those activities like mass ejections, coronal mass ejections, they get moved up toward the poles. So the earth has some kind of a protective blanket around it, but nothing's impervious. I mean, the big thing we have to really worry about is if a gamma ray pulsar or a gamma ray burst is within maybe a thousand light years of earth and it lit up, that might change the future of, you know, what the human DNA genomes and whole, you know, DNA thing. But for now, Al, I'm going to just wish everybody and yourself a happy new year, because thank God we don't have any of those things. Let's watch the sun, though. But I think we're pretty safe, even with a strong solar flare. It could wipe out communications and take us away from our normal communications for a while, but probably not kill us
1: as a human species. All right, 800-848-9222. We're going to continue in a moment with uh, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. For those of you wondering what's in store for space this year, we'll get to that. What about this eclipse we've been telling you about? We'll get to that. And uh, a bunch of other things. If you have questions, we have two lines open. 800 848 eight ninety-two-22. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Cosmic Conversations, straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight. side at Midnight with Frank Murano.
1: Of the hour, we are having our bi monthly cosmic conversations with Dr. Sky Steve Cates. If you have questions, we'll get to them. 800 848 92 22. That's 800 848 92 22. Steve, uh, anything in the night sky that people should be on the lookout for, and as a corollary to that, My brother, Dr. Nicholas Moreno, who is a genuine uh, Ph.D., is actually in Australia right now with uh, my beautiful sister-in-law, Kat. Is there anything they should be on the lookout for in terms of stargazing in that continent while they're out there? Two-part question, Steve.
3: Yes, please pass that on. We'll go with their location, as you mentioned, Australia, right? Well, a new moon is coming out now, so they have the luxury of seeing the expanse of a southern Milky Way that's probably, I haven't been to Australia, but it's on my list someday. But since they're there, they will see the most magnificent display of the Milky Way, obviously, as long as it's a clear sky. Because what the southern Milky Way, for those that are listening that have seen this, you know, southern latitudes, South America, Australia, New Zealand, Areas like that, that is just otherworldly, they say, because you're seeing the deep, dark part of the Milky Way and the deep, bright part of the Milky Way. That's quite fantastic. But for us, throughout the listening area of this vast radio station, obviously there's some interesting things to see. So we find the moon goes new on the 11th. So as you look into the sky into the southwest as early as the 12th, you'll see that beautiful slender, thin, waxing moon again. It's beautiful. It's closest to the Earth again on the 13th. And then we have a first quarter moon on the 18th. But don't forget, the beautiful, the beautiful full moon, the first one of January, is the full wolf moon. That happens on the 25th at exactly 1254 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Now, you're going to probably say, folks, well, you can't see the moon then because it's daytime. Well, that moon rising on the evening of the 25th will be quite spectacular. And we're coming out of a meteor shower called this most amazing name, the Quadrantids, Still, if people look into the northeast sky or in the early morning hours over the next few nights, you may see a few fireballs. That happens every year It peaked on the morning of the 3rd. So always some amazing things. Jupiter is a planet. You can't miss it. Look almost to the high overhead point as you listen on this radio station in clear skies. That's amazing. Still with telescopes and binoculars, you get to see the moons of the mighty planet Jupiter. There you go.
1: Uh, Igor is in New Jersey. Hi, Igor.
3: Hey, greetings, Frank, and greetings, Steve. Uh, Steve, about the Boeing failure, why does Boeing or the airline
2: use a subcontractor to put in those door plugs? And uh, why don't they do it themselves? And secondly, are there other operations that the subcontractor you think is doing to configure the plane in different ways?
3: Well, I don't know the answer to the second part of that, but I can say this way. If you look at the listing of what was inside any of those aircraft on the build sheet, you would find out that so many of these parts are subcontracted out with companies that have the expertise. And I'm not a builder of airplanes, but I was in the electronic industry for a long time. And there's a subject which they talk about called JIT, just in time. So look at Boeing, they have to have on their assembly line this projection for all these orders that have to come in. So if you're missing a fuselage, you can't build an airplane. But that's what I'm saying with this plug on there, it's the responsibility of those folks. And let's not take away from Boeing's responsibility There should be other procedures to double check the work. So that's quite an interesting story. Not sure how that pans out, but in the world of aviation, overall, I think Boeing and all these other companies have done a pretty darn good job. You know, human error is something that, uh, well, it'll never go away, but there's no excuse for something like that.
1: Hey, um, we've been covering this eclipse that's coming up. Give us the lowdown yep. on the eclipse. What do we know about it? When it's going to be the best way to enjoy it safely and uh, at its most beautiful. Thank you. It's
3: the biggest story of 2024. In my mind, it's April 8th of this year. I was easy to just say 2024, but we're in it and it's just 80 plus days away. So we're hoping to be in Southern Texas where the best of the viewing conditions will be. But folks, Everybody listening in New York and in the Northeast, the cities of Buffalo, Rochester, are going to experience something that they haven't seen in maybe a long time that won't repeat again in those areas for maybe 370 years. So we hope to do this with the permission of the folks at the WABC. And, of course, getting to do some live reports on this. We'll tell you more about it and also, hopefully in weeks to come, how you can maybe get these solar glasses that we recommend because you need it in order to see the eclipse from children, adults. But here's one for the record, though I won't be around and maybe some listeners will. No kidding. On the morning of May 1st, 2079, Oh, here he goes, right? 2079, there will be a total solar eclipse that begins right off the coast of New York City. How about that? Wow. And areas like Coney Island will get to see the sun rising as a totally eclipsed sun, and it starts off, literally, I wouldn't want to be right there, at sunrise, right in some part of southwestern New Jersey. It moves right across Long Island and the Long Island Sound, but the only problem for me is my birthday is on the 30th of this month. I'll be 68, but not to stand on a stage here may 1st 2079 is not a real favorable year for me if you know what i mean (laughs) but we'll talk about the eclipse frank it's a big deal it's probably the biggest event never to be anything but truthful here this is probably the most spectacular event that more people will see and our problem is this when we're down in that area of let's say southern texas you know we're looking to be in an area called kerrville or a little tiny town called junction they're having these festivals and we're trying to, you know, work together with these folks to be, you well, know, I'd like to be one of the MCs of an event. That's a possibility. But guess what? There'll be more people there than even the eclipse in 2017. And here's the issue. How are you going to find food, water, gasoline and shelter? Some of the rooms already now are going for I'm not making this up. Twenty thousand dollars a night. Whoa! If you want, if you want to, oh, to keep you posted.
1: That's why, <laughs> Steve. We're gonna have to end it there. Thank you so much. As always, I look forward to chatting with yeah. you again in two weeks.
3: Have a good morning. Thank you.
1: If uh, you want to learn more, just search the Doctor Sky Experience on any podcast app. In the meantime, in the words of the great Casey Kasem, keep reaching for the stars, but always keep your feet on the ground.